0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of Left podcast with clips today from Intersection, Criticize After Dinner, Propaganda, Radio Dispatch, Redacted Tonight, On Being, and The Benjamin Dixon Show.
1: Now I couldn't do a podcast called Intersection without having the woman who coined the term intersectionality on the show. Joining me now is Kimberly Crenshaw, law professor at both UCLA and Columbia University. Kim, thanks so much for coming on the show.
2: It's really a pleasure to be here. So
1: Kim, what is intersectionality?
2: Intersectionality refers to the fact that many of our modes of talking about discrimination, many of the laws designed to intervene against it, some of our popular tropes are all problematically framed around a singular idea, namely that you experience either racism or sexism or any other ism and they're mutually exclusive and separate. And as a consequence, a lot of the laws that have been developed um, only look at one issue at a time. So first you have to make your claim about race discrimination, and then you have to make your claim about sex discrimination. And the problem is that many times those who are subject to both or more than one form of discrimination can't prove these one step at a time. And because they can't prove it one step at a time, they often are, are told that they haven't experienced or have not experienced any kind of discrimination discrimination. And so that's where intersectionality originally came from. I was looking at cases where black women were told they could not prove discrimination because black men were hired and they couldn't prove discrimination on the basis of gender because white women were hired. So they were basically told you don't have a claim. So I wanted to use a metaphor that said, okay, you see race coming along this road, right? And you see gender coming along this road. Imagine what happens when they connect when they um, collide. That's what discrimination is. And when we send an ambulance to the scene of the crime to actually lift up the women, It's terrible when the ambulances just drive away because it couldn't be proved that the women who were hit in that intersection were hit just by race traffic or just by gender traffic. So intersectionality was just a, a quick way to imagine a world in which there are all these collisions and to raise the awareness so that we would be able to address those who fall in the intersection.
1: We've been talking about the future of gay life in America and the recent Supreme Court decision on marriage equality. How can we better engage in debates about topics like this with an intersectional lens, do you think?
2: intersectionality draws our attention to the fact that there is no one moment where everyone who is subject to a particular discrimination is free uh, unless the other intersecting dimensions of their lives, like race and class, are also included within it. So the real challenge is now that marriage equality um, is virtually one and a constitutional right, where else will the energies go to ensure those populations that are, are winning Women or that are poor or the black have the same functional access to the many benefits that those who are more privileged will get from marriage equality. That's the challenge that intersectionality raises for us.
1: Now, talking about resources being diverted to marginalized communities, I want to talk a little bit about the Say Her Name report that you co-authored earlier this year about police brutality and black women. We have two big cases in the media right now. 28-year-old Sandra Bland earlier this month was pulled over in Texas and three days after that found hanging in her jail cell dead. Then we have 18-year-old Kendra Chapman, who allegedly committed suicide in her jail cell. Kim, how can those two cases help us understand intersectionality?
2: Well, I think that the Sandra Bland case gives us a textbook illustration of how black women have been subject to and vulnerable to police violence. But more broadly, how they've been subject to violence that is generated in a system that is both racist and patriarchal at the same time. The first problem is the very fact that she was pulled over for a minor traffic infraction if it occurred at all. And that is consistent uh, with numerous reports that show that black drivers, male and female, are disproportionately subject to being stopped for traffic infractions. We know just just from the beginning that this is a problem. And the Supreme Court really hasn't given much teeth to efforts to protect people against these kinds of stops. But, but it gets deep quickly. That arrest in and of itself wasn't about a threat to the officer's safety. It was about the way that this particular black woman was challenging the expectation that she should Act in a subordinate way, namely, she should go along with the program, assume the position, be cooperative with whatever was happening, regardless of what she thought. Now, the reality is in the United States, people can express displeasure about their interactions with the police. They can decide not to have a smile on their face when they feel that they've been racially profiled. But as a black woman in America, in which one's access to actual womanhood is actually challenged, in which race serves as an indicator that this is a body who is undisciplined and is in need of punishment, when we see this video, we see in it millions of instances that black women have had over the course of history in which both our race makes us subject to a particular kind of disciplinary violence and our gender does not save us from that violence. That's a, that's a moment of intersectionality that we've talked about in Say Our Name. We also talked about it in another report called Black Girls Matter. So we're trying to bring into view how intersectionality makes black women particularly subject to racial and patriarchal forms of coercion and violence.
1: Kimberly Crenshaw, law professor at both UCLA and Columbia University. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you.
3: To break down,
4: and maybe this is too hard, but it, it, like can you give us the sort of sixty second version of like identity politics, how it emerged, what it meant, because I feel like the 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 conservative movement has been very successful into turning identity politics into just like
3: a slander, and I think a lot of people are only familiar with it in that context. Like, oh, you're just trying to play identity politics. So, can you talk a little bit about where it came from and what it means?
5: Sure. That you know, obviously, that's a very big conversation. A, I, know. I can, I'll probably post. There's Edward, Edward Said has a nice you know few page uh, synopsis, and there's some some other very good you know kind of basics. On, on it, but it, you know, identity is produced principally by systems of oppression to rationalize colonialism, to rationalize the slavery of of Africans, to rationalize um, the civilizing or the you know extermination of indigenous people in the Americas, and to rationalize male control over property against women. And so it's these systems of uh, of oppression of patriarchy and white supremacy and colonialism that produce. What it means, at least in the current sense, to be black or to be Latino or to be indigenous or to be, uh, you know, a woman or to be queer and So all of these identities then are, are, you know, are become identities of resistance or subjugation, right? The 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 power structures understanding of identity initially is that these are more submissive um, groups of people and and types of people, and they are naturally to be subjugated by the by the the dominant race or nationality or gender. And so people respond to that, and Franz Fanon, you know, and, and Albert Memmi, and Simone de Beauvoir, and I think we've, we've talked about de Beauvoir stuff, but Edward Said can, you know, I think he can, uh, we can post a, a good article of his that does a good kind of wrap-up. People... Are created as the colonial subjects, as the colonized, as uh, what what Fanon would call the wretched of the earth, and therefore they they band together and begin to resist, right? And you you begin to have consciousness um, that your this system has created you and it has made you the wretched, and you have to fight back. And so I think that the conservative perception, it, or or at least what they want people to perceive their 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 perception to be, is that. Well, on the one hand, there is this kind of attempt to create multiculturalism and d- diversity and respect everybody's identities and respect their histories, and that is killing society because if we think about it, everything as identities, we will have to be, we will have to conform to the identities we're given, um, by this, you know, socially liberal, you know, socialist pinko, uh, feminazi world, and that will eventually take us to fascism somehow, and instead what we need to do is just you know, respect individuality, and that if we we break free of in, uh, of 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 identity, and we, we're you know colorblind, and you know we're not feminist, we're just whatever. Everybody is is themselves, their own individuals. Then some people will naturally come to the top. And guess what? A lot of those people who are naturally going to come to the top are going to be the white male entrepreneurs, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know, so I, so it's totally disingenuous the the conservative attack on identity, um, because it was conservatism and the systems that conservatives are trying to preserve that uh, uh, that produced it in the first place. So often, but on the other hand. Um, it 's disingenuous because they 're saying well, this is the you know the, the we have to not notice race and not notice gender and naturally whoever 's going to come to the top has has come to the top or is going to come to the top and you know if you're if you 're you know going to preserve this system well it 's going to continue to be the rich and the rich are mostly going to be globally white men mhm I think that that would be my Probably more than sixty seconds synopsis of, <laughs> of this question, and, but it's a question that the left has is, has been entangling with for decades too, because we have a lot of debates uh, and I think that there's a lot of people who do identity politics in really weak ways and people who oppose identity politics and have really weak politics. and then there's a lot of people on the left who I think are doing smart uh, intersectional politics and so you know that's that's my incredibly short synopsis of the really you know savage debates within the left on identity.
3: call out progressive individuals for relying on offensive ads or sexist stereotypes to make their point, they're often accused of stirring up trouble or contributing to tiresome infighting or trying to force their ideas on someone else. So why is it important to try and be inclusive? Why is it important to listen to criticism? Writer Leela Janelle has this essay on why being politically correct isn't just about being polite. For many people, changing the way we talk and think, changing our culture is necessary for their survival.
6: It can be tough to watch your language. In New York Magazine recently, writer Jonathan Chait penned an essay on this topic called Not a Very PC Thing to Say. In his piece, Chait argues that striving to always be inclusive and politically correct hurts liberal thinkers and activists. Chait discusses the anxiety that progressive people often feel about expressing themselves. That certainly rings true. Repeatedly, he gives examples of writers' words being misconstrued, leading to ferocious pylons in social media. He quotes writers describing the ways in which they sculpt and censor their messages, fretting over the response they'll bring. In these moments, Chait's essay feels universal. We're all human, aren't we? He appears to ask. Why are we screaming at each other? But then he argues that PC activists are seeking to eliminate intellectual freedom by limiting other people's vocabularies. That's where Chait loses most readers, including me. The Internet is not a world where strident leftists shout down thoughtful liberals. It's a world where everybody shouts about everyone else, from every conceivable angle and platform. There was never a time in our media where politeness and reason prevailed. The change we're feeling now is that more people, ones beyond white straight men, have voices that can reach nationwide in our media. This all reminds me of the great Louis C.K. routine about how a white man can time travel to any period of history comfortably and enjoys such cultural dominance that nothing can be said to hurt his feelings. When some people, like Jonathan Chait, discuss microaggressions, trigger warnings, and safety, they can do so with a skeptical academic detachment. In their view, the requirements placed on people to be good allies under the current conventions of Internet discourse are elaborate, restricting, and somewhat burdensome. What's missing from this portrait are the social conditions underlying PC culture, Chait's essay details a couple of examples where attempts to make light of identity resulted in outrage and action. Here's one. In an online women's journalism group, a discussion of racial and trans awareness was met by a woman identifying ironically as a gluten-free WWC, or woman without color. People condemned her flippancy. The gluten-free woman was joking, and, in contrast, Chait characterizes her critics as rageful and without reason. What he seems to be unable to take into account are the differing stakes for those whose identities are described by such prefixes. The stakes are high for many of us because of our identities. So it's hard to see a joke about our race, gender, or sexuality as good fun rather than as a sharp and unasked-for jab in the ribs. (laughs) There is no Cis Day of Remembrance, for example, as there is for trans people, because hundreds of cisgender people are not murdered every year due to their gender identities. Likewise, there is no White Lives Matter movement, as there is for black people, because white people are not murdered at an alarming rate by police officers in the U.S. A straight white cis man can enjoy the luxury of entertaining all points of view on issues because no issues being currently debated involve his liberties or rights. No one's arguing about his right to get married. No one's arguing about his right to walk down the street without getting stopped and searched by a cop or hollered at and followed by dudes. For a trans person like myself, can be legally fired because of my gender identity in 32 states, political issues leave the realm of polite ideals and enter the realm of survival. PC language isn't just about being polite, it's about helping us claim our basic human rights. The idea that PC language is restricting free thought, or even democracy, is laughable. People policing offensive language currently possess a newfound power thanks to the ease of publishing and publicizing our ideas online. But in political and legal terms, we continue to work to ensure our basic security and are in no position to oppress others in the way we are oppressed. My favorite response to Chait's essay comes from Lisa Factora Borchers at the website Truthout. She writes, Amid a national groundswell of organized national protests, marches, die-ins, fundraisers, and smartly penned articles by activists of color, some white liberal critics are proclaiming a dearth of hope in this country because of hurt feelings and loss of personal high ground. They monitor their own exhaustion levels as a sign of a healthy movement rather than working to understand that the pain associated with social progress may be a lifelong symptom of earned humility. It's easy to relate to the portrait of the Internet as a tiresome and inhospitable place. If there's a remedy, though, it's certainly not demonizing the voices of those who most urgently need to share our stories.
2: Janelle is a trans woman playwright and journalist whose work appears in PQ monthly bitch and the advocate on Twitter. She's at Leela Janelle.
7: Welcome back to the show, Sarah Jaffe, fellow at the Nation Institute, co-host of the Belabored Belabored Podcast from Dissent Magazine, and also future author, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on Radio Dispatch.
3: Thank you for having me back. I've missed you guys.
8: You have a great story (laughs) over at Dame Magazine. The headline is, Are We Mistaking Feelings for Politics? And you start off by talking about the the origins of the famous phrase, "The, the personal is political, and how that phrase has been twisted. So can you uh, take our listeners through that process?
3: Yeah, so, right, the personal is political was this this wonderful second-wave feminist, as much as we're dividing feminism into waves, which is a thing we could talk about for three hours. um, It was this wonderful catchphrase that was sort of used um, and came out of these consciousness-raising groups, which were essentially groups where women would get together and talk about their issues and realize that these things aren't sort of personal, individual things that only happen to us. Like, it's only my husband is a jerk. No, actually, this is how men are socially taught to treat women. These are social issues. Um, And it was, actually, that just occurred to me that maybe the better, you know, Term would have been to not just call it political, but call it social in some way. Anyway, um, right, and so it was a way that we recognized that these problems were not individual and not limited to individuals, but that they were symptoms of, you know, this thing we like to call patriarchy.
7: And so now there is so much, um, so much of the way that political issues are. Talked about on the internet. I, I think it's both that they're actually spoken about this way and also that like political conversations are kind of understood this way, yeah. fairly or unfairly, and we can maybe talk about that more as, as, as a matter of, um, of a personal reaction to something, right? Like, yeah. I am offended by this, or I am, or, uh, something like a, a feeling's reaction to something political. Yeah. And, and you talk about why that's, um, about the shortcomings of, of framing it that way.
3: Yeah, well, the thing that, like, sparked me to write this piece at this particular time was sort of a confluence of things other people had written. So, like, Catherine Cross. Um, wrote this great piece that's over at Feministing. It was talking about how we need to get rid of the idea that, like, we're talking about offensiveness when we're talking about, um, transphobic language in particular, um, or racist language or anything like that. Like, the problem in saying something racist is not just that you offend somebody, right? Like, people can handle being offended. We're all mostly grown-ups here, um, but that it's part, it's that racist language, transphobic language, homophobic language, sexist language is part of a structure of oppression, and it is part of how people are systematically dehumanized and thus made... It makes it, helps make it possible for like the murder statistics of trans women, particularly trans women of color, to be astronomical, right? Because people are so, these people are so systematically dehumanized in language, in culture, in conversation, all the time. And so like the difference, actually Rachel Rosenfeld put this really well in a Twitter when she was talking about some guy sort of um, throwing anti-Semitic slurs at her. And she's like, listen, as a Jewish woman in New York City, I experience pretty much no structural oppression because I'm a Jew. Mm-hmm. So you throwing these words at me is basically just words. <laughs> um, as opposed to using racist language against black people who do very much still face structural oppression in New York city, in around America, um, certainly not just in the South, like we like to talk about. And so there's a real difference between being offended because you insulted me, um, and being, and that language having a place in a structure of oppression that is social, that is actually, and I really love the way, um, Dean Spade, who's a, um, uh, legal theorist um, talks about like this is as shortened life, right? That like when we talk about oppression, we're talking about life chances. We're talking about not just, again, your feelings being offended, but we're talking about your life and the actual impact that this will have on your life.
8: One one of the things that I think is is so interesting of uh, in in your piece and what you're saying right now is that there's this sort of internet discourse that often feels very bogged down where. There's a reactionary sort of take on like how uh, there's an, an outrage machine, right? Right. And, yeah. And uh, all these people are are has, too, has PC uh, gone too far? You know, feeding the outrage machine, etc., etc. Most of them just intellectually bankrupt as yeah. as a critique. But what you're talking about is a is a much sort of clearer way of understanding what are you know some shortcomings of of uh, internet dialogue.
3: Yeah, well, I think, you know, the thing is that, like, feelings are very important. Most people are politicized because of an emotional reaction to something that happened. When we witness what is happening in Ferguson right now, a lot of people had a very visceral emotional reaction to not only the death of Mike Brown, but the fact that the cops left this guy in the street for four and a half hours. Um... That is an emotional reaction. But the fact that like it has become a political movement is because people were able to put that thing that happened into a broader social context and connect it to all of these different things that were happening all the time, right? So it was immediately connected to the way the municipal courts right, serve as a way to just extract money from black people in Ferguson. Um, it was connected to the way cops and George Zimmerman and miscellaneous other people are basically allowed to kill black people with impunity. Um, it was connected to a system of oppression again. Um, and so, yeah, I think that one of the problems, and this piece came out of also um, this chat book that Melissa Guerra Grant and I wrote together um and this is um talking about the way especially sort of feminist politics gets often reduced to like hand-wringing-y feelings-y like, but sex work makes me feel icky, so it must be bad and we must ban it and never mind what the people who are actually doing it say they need. Right. It's about that. It makes me feel icky or like the piece that I think you guys discussed on the podcast already that Katha Pollitt wrote about not wanting to use trans inclusive language around abortion because it makes her feel weird. And like, I'm sorry, I don't care about your feelings. Your feelings are not useful to me in any real way, like, you know. You should ask Melissa to tell a story about um, the meeting that she went to while um, we were in Seattle together on, on two different reporting trips that happened to coincide. I guess she can tell it much better than I can, but there's this way that all of this politics just comes down to, like, this makes me feel bad. And, like, that's not what it's about. And if it only is about feelings, then it really is just as bad to say that somebody is racist or say that somebody is transphobic as it is to be racist or be transphobic and like that's just not true right it's just, you will live through being called a racist i have lived through it it hasn't killed me um i promise i'm doing just fine <laughs> and <laughs> you know it's not the worst thing in the world that will happen to you
7: and, and your piece, too, you also re, um, mention uh, uh, the piece at the New Republic that we also talked about at length here on yes. the show the, the by Phoebe maltz called The Feel- Feelings Journalism, um, right. where yes. she talks, where she kind of um, describes this phenomenon of writers being paid less so that they don't have to report, but they can kind of just, like, guess at how people might be feeling about a certain political event. And, yeah. you know, as a reporter and as a feminist and as somebody, like, where, where we don't have to, you know, I, I, I like the idea of we don't have to draw these strong lines between like either you're reporting and you have no thoughts or feelings or you're only talking about your feelings right right
3: yeah and like the thing is too is that like women are always taken less seriously because we're emotional, right? We have all these feelings and all those feelings get in the way of, like, critical thought or <laughs> real work, right? Um, and <laughs> that's bullshit. <laughs> we know that's bullshit. But, like, it has become this way that, like, feminist media... Um, and, and not even just feminist media, right? Like media that is targeting women, um, really, you know, profits on these, like, I, it happened to me stories, and like, I, I had a, a sad feeling about a black woman in my yoga class story, like, <laughs> right? The way that is, but like, it's, it's really important to understand that, like, This and, like, the hot take economy where, like, there are 20 million hot takes on, I don't know, who's going to replace Jon Stewart (laughs) or... Um, I'm trying to think of a more recent one, and I'm failing because I don't know anything about pop culture in these days, guys. I don't know the new Kendrick album, right? There are gonna be 20 million hot takes on it. It's really good. In fact, I listened to it after Michael Denzel Smith plugged it on your podcast. Nice. <laughs> that right, there. This is because those things are cheap to produce because you don't pay somebody who is writing their opinions or their feelings about something the same way you pay somebody who spent um, three weeks reporting a piece and then writing it out and that's you know that is part of what's going on with the media in the internet age in any case that there's less money there's less money because advertising has decoupled from media again these are things we could talk about forever um but yeah and what ends up happening right is that women end up continually pigeonholed into this space where we just, like, have feelings about things and they're totally irrational feelings and blah, 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 blah. (laughs) And, like, it's both problematic in terms of, like, yeah, actually, most of these pieces written about, like, how you feel about somebody else's life are kind of gross. Mm -hmm. How you feel about your own life is totally valid, by the way. You should write about that all you want. You just Mm -hmm. probably won't be paid very well for it. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, Understanding how those things are political and how those things connect to larger structures is really important. And um, understanding that, like, if you are being paid to have feelings about somebody else's life, even if you're not being paid very well for it, you're probably you're being paid more than the person whose life you're having feelings about is being paid. Mm-hmm. And so that is also a structure of power that you should be aware of. I don't know. Everything comes down to power, right, guys? I mean, this is a thing that we talk about a lot.
7: I I do love the idea of feelings getting, female feelings getting in the way of critical thought. That's
3: just. Excellent. I mean, but that's the thing, right? And then so this is this big morass of complicated and often sexist, screwed up thought and. Yeah, it's hard to pick it apart because I don't want to say that your feelings are stupid or invalid or useless. I don't want to say that you shouldn't write about how you feel about things. Um, but I want to say that it is important when you're thinking about them politically that, like, just because you had a sad about something doesn't make that a political gesture and a political point, and you actually have to do some more work to make that political. Um, and yeah, and then, Yeah, I want to like close this by talking about power, right? And how when we make it all about feelings, then like everybody's feelings are the same, right? Right. Everybody's feelings are worth exactly as much. And that totally obscures that when you're getting paid a lot of money to write a cover story for the nation about toxic Twitter feminism, the people you're writing about mostly aren't getting paid a lot of money to be on Twitter or be feminists or be whatever. They are broke. And they are possibly struggling and they are not listened to and granted authority over their own lives the way you have just been granted authority over their lives. And that's a position of power that people really obscure in these conversations an awful lot and And so again right like nice white lady feelings are wonderful things and i hope that you have all sorts of outlets to deal with them but like your feelings about my life are not politics your feelings about a fast food worker's life are not politics your feelings about a sex worker's life are not politics your feelings about trans women at smith college are not politics
7: and as you point out yeah they're not politics and it's also not solidarity
3: No, it is certainly not. And like Melissa made that point really well that, you know, instead of actual solidarity, instead of actually showing up and asking people what they need, you're sort of weeping about them from a safe distance. And that's not, yeah, that's not helping anybody. That's, and it's, again, it's not political. It's certainly not action. It's just feelings. And this is what women are allowed to have is feelings. And so, you know, we want to both say that like the things that have been stereotyped as female are good and valid and important. And also that like we are not only capable of those things and that to do political work, we have to move beyond just emoting. (laughs)
9: Right. <laughs> Driving through Pennsylvania last weekend when I saw a deranged right-wing billboard consisting of a photo of Robert Redford with the words, Demands green living, flies in private jets. Okay, first of all, he doesn't demand green living. He says humanity must do something about climate change before we cook ourselves. But this does raise a question. Is it okay to criticize something when you're part of the problem? For example, I sometimes criticize Starbucks, even though when there's not a local coffee shop around, I will have Starbucks. This is because I am addicted to caffeine. I'm addicted to being fully awake for the end times, all right? There is nothing worse than a groggy apocalypse. There's not! Because the zombies are like... And the people are like... Caffeine... So I will sometimes drink Starbucks. A-, a drug addict doesn't differentiate between drug dealers when he needs a fix, does he? You know, you don't see a lot of heroin addicts getting the shakes and going, "I'm not buying from that guy. He's a Republican. Are you nuts? What? You think I'm going to shoot up with somebody who thinks we found WMD in Iraq? Come on. What? Next, next, I'll just buy some meth from Pierce Brosnan. I know you thought I was going to say someone worse, like Hitler, but I cannot forgive Brosnan for what he did to 007, or I turn the greatest spy agent of all time into a f***ing romantic comedy douchebag. <laughs> yeah, let's replace Jason Bourne with Ross from Friends. <laughs> but my point is... We should be okay with activists criticizing our society while still existing in it to some degree. Yeah, the best and most well-known climate activists fly in planes sometimes to get where the to going. You know why there aren't climate change activists who refuse to ever get on a plane or drive in a car? There are, but you've never heard of them because they're sitting in a log cabin alone in the hills of Wyoming pooping in the woods. They're never, they're, they're not doing CNN interviews because they'd have to get across the country on roller skates. Alright? I, for one, I for—I don't know who that is, but I, for one, am glad we're not waiting for Bill McKibbins of 350.org to pogo stick to the international climate summit in Doha, you right-wing <laughs> nuts. And where are the left-wing equivalent of those stupid billboards? Karl Rove yeah. claims to be privatized for privatized free market everything, but uses roads to drive on, built by the government. People did this same crap with Occupy. They're using iPhones and computers while protesting. First of all, why is asking that big banks not destroy our economy mutually exclusive with using a phone? You can't be 4 Glass eagle and use a telephone, you hypocrite. How long do you think, how long do you think we'll have to wait for a revolution that only communicates in body pain and notes tied to balloons I say use every bit of the dominant technology to tear down the system of unfettered capitalism mixed with unquestioned oligarchy because an Amish revolution that fires up the world with butter churns is less than likely. (laughs) The butter churn rebellion is not on the horizon. It's similar to people asking me why Redacted Tonight is on RT and not another network. I'll tell you why. My anti-consumerism, anti-two-party corporate totalitarianism isn't, um, exactly well. With open arms on networks showing 24 7 Walmart ads. So I have to look for networks without commercials, meaning RT, HBO, C SPAN, and Community Access. All right? HBO isn't knocking on my door. For C SPAN, I'd have to host my show from the floor of the Senate, and the last time I tried that, I was waterboarded. And I can't get on Community Access because I'd have to compete with this. <laughs> Look, there's not a lot of time left for us, meaning people, meaning humans, meaning stupid skeletons riding around in flesh mobiles made of stardust filled with gravy. We're in the middle of a mass extinction of the world's wildlife and we really expect the people who care enough to talk about these things to sit at home going, I will only deliver my message on TV if the TV network is funded completely by vegan yoga instructors and the studio staffed by underprivileged children with Down syndrome who don't identify with either gender. No genders at my studio. My point is, if we're waiting for the perfect outlets or the perfect human beings to lead the charge to fix this (laughs) storm, then we'll be dead before it happens. So I'll take a small bit of hypocrisy over dead.
4: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today in a cross-generational conversation with thinkers and writers Parker Palmer and Courtney Martin. We're at the 2014 Pop Tech Conference in Camden, Maine, with the theme of rebellion. So there's a phrase of Thomas Merton, that in everything there is a hidden wholeness, that you both have reflected on in your writing. And I wonder if you'd just talk a little bit about um, what you think that has to say to 21st century people. And with this theme of rebellion kind of in mind.
10: Well, I think it's an act of rebellion to be a whole person, right? It's an act of rebellion to show up as your whole self. And especially the the parts that are complex, that are unfinished, that are vulnerable. Um, you know, in part because of the Internet, and we're talking about sort of living online versus living on land and who you sh- who you sort of curate yourself to be, et cetera. I think there's been never been more pressure um, to kind of parcel yourself to you know, Irvin Goffman, the sociologist, talked about sort of these performative selves. And I feel like it's like it's never been more kind of asked of us to show up as only slices of ourselves in different places. So I think even just to to feel like you're showing up as your whole self in different settings is a, is a pretty rebellious act. But I also think it's really something deeper about um, discomfort was mentioned earlier, and I think it's, it's a word that probably hasn't come up enough over the course of our time together, is that we're in a time that I think can create too much comfort if you let it. And so there's something about being whole but being uncomfortable in that wholeness and, like, holding those things together. You know what I mean, Parker? I'm trying to, like, grapple at what, what the relationship between discomfort and wholeness is. Oh,
11: yeah. I mean, I think you're right on target, Courtney. I, you know, I, I was listening to you with great appreciation and thinking, I love your phrase, you know, it's an act of rebellion to show up as someone trying to be whole, and I would add, as someone who believes that there is a hidden wholeness, beneath the very evident brokenness of our world. And somebody who wants to say that somehow part of that hidden wholeness is love, part of that hidden wholeness is our fellow feeling for each other, part of that hidden wholeness is a desire to make this thing work and to work it out together, Um, the act of persisting in, in those fundamental beliefs that something better is possible. I think this is courage, and I try to call myself to it every day, and I often fail. So rebellion can be that very small thing of swimming upstream against a tide of cynicism or against a tide of scarcity and and trying to witness to that in your life day in and day out. And it can really, really make you hurt. As I've said in my writing and in my talking, three times in my adult life, I have been plunged into deep depression for six, eight months at a time. Uh, Depression isn't the cost that everyone pays, but I'm working with some people now in the world of Internet uh, startups who are very, very concerned about the rash of suicides that happened a few years ago among relatively young and some middle-aged Internet startup folks where the success rate is only 10%. And a lot of money is at stake, and a lot of people's jobs are at stake, and they've taken this all on themselves, and they're not getting any sleep, and they can't find any peace. And so, you know, we really need to be talking with each other about these things. Uh, we need to go public with it because we are each other's health care workers.
4: Yeah, and I think, and and not just uh, people who are successes, but the people who are, trying to make a difference in the world Absolutely.
10: Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, people I mean, engage it anyway. in social justice it grew out of an experience for me which was you know, leaving college I went to Barnard College and I was kind of pumped up on my human rights education I wanted to go do something in the world this is 2002 And, you know, it was a really rough time to be a young, idealistic person who wanted to... You were senior in college,
4: starting your senior year when September 11th happened, right? Yeah, Mm -hmm.
10: experienced September 11th. And then, you know, I was part of the anti-war marches. I woke my friends up out of their hungover stupor and said, like, you're coming to this march. And I'm like, no, we got to be there. we got to be bodies on the street. I actually got to this place of deep desperation. I wouldn't call it depression necessarily because I haven't had the same kind of clinical experience. But but i had this i actually a very funny my family went to this d- totally depressing documentary which is our favorite thing to do when we all get together it's really <laughs> a lovely tradition um, and we we came home and it, you know we were all totally upset and i said you know i've had this fantasy of lighting myself on fire on the white house steps like writing a letter about why war is wrong and lighting myself on fire and and I realized it was totally overdramatic and ridiculous, but it was speaking to this thing of like, here's like a, a white woman in America with a safety net and all kinds of privilege, and I feel so powerless that that's what I want to do? Like, something's going on here. And that's when I started to deconstruct the narratives I was holding on to and the ideas I had about what successful rebellion looked like, right? Like, I wanted to do the march and have the war stop. I wanted to canvas for the, the president. I wanted to win, and I wanted him to win. Like, I had this very transactional relationship with the idea of rebellion. Mm-hmm. And so part of what I understood through that emotional low was that I needed to reorient myself, have a totally different relationship with rebellion that would last me a lifetime and, and was honoring of the lifetimes of rebellion that have come before me, that here I thought I was just going to like graduate and head out into the world and like be super efficient. Um, I'm a little suspicious of efficiency, in part because I crave it so much, and I think that that's a very generational thing. It's like we're really obsessed with efficiency. And emotions aren't efficient. And I think rebellion in many ways isn't efficient Mm -hmm. and never will be.
12: All right, so six rules. Number one. Never dismiss. This is important. Never dismiss the experiences of your allies. The first thing that we need to do for us to work together better is to absolutely stop dismissing. You may not want to hear it. You may not be guilty of it. You may have never witnessed it, but your experiences, my experiences do not represent the totality of what happens in the world. There's a lot that happens that we don't even know is happening. And so if people are telling you that something is happening, listen to them i cannot tell you how many times i've been racially profiled in stores pulled over by the cops never getting a ticket never i can't tell you how many times i've been called a nigger i can't tell you how many times i've been on a job in a, in a store being called colored you know what i mean but if if you can't hear me and you constantly dismiss me because you've never experienced it and you're not guilty of it then then you're doing then it's impossible for us to consider ourselves allies Completely impossible because you you don't understand my fight and my plight. So the best thing that we can do before I get all dramatic about it is just we have to listen to each other. Don't dismiss what they're saying. You are not guilty of it. Fine. I get it. But somebody is or else they wouldn't be saying it to you. And don't don't just think everybody is lying. You know what I mean? People have experiences that you're not aware of. And we have to listen. So that's number one. Number two, we have to acknowledge the agency and the free will of every ally. Uh, it sounds a little esoteric, but it, it it really means something. Every ally is able to fight their particular battle. Every ally has their own story. Every ally has their own nemesis. I mean, every everyone has a narrative that they are the center of attention in. Right? We need to recognize that and realize that if we are fighting alongside our allies on their issue, then we're not the hero of that story. Right? We're the sidekick. Like if, you know, if I'm fighting for women's rights... I don't have to, I don't have to fly in like a bat out of hell and try to be the hero for women's rights. I could just, I'm just the sidekick for women's rights. And likewise, if you want to join up with us and fight against systemic racism in the United States of America, come on. We need all the help we can get. But realize that this is our narrative. This is our story and that we are the hero of that narrative. If I can use superhero, uh, 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 a superhero framework and that we need you to not try to be the center of attention and not make it about you. Likewise, I can't make, I can't make your fight about me, right? When you need me to fight for you, then I need to come and stand beside you and not try to stand in front of you. Simple, right? I think that would help a lot of confusion, um, end a lot of confusion. Number three, this is a tough one, guys and gals, ladies and gentlemen. We have to recognize and acknowledge our own privilege. We have to. Everybody. Every single person in the United States of America has some type of privilege. Um, even, even, even if you are at the bottom of the social strata, you still have some type of privilege. I am black, I am Christian, I'm cisgendered, and I'm heterosexual, right? So the fact that I'm black, I do have a lot of challenges that I experience Realistically, not just figuratively speaking, not hyperbolically speaking, it is a real thing, right? But I also experience privilege in the fact that I never have to worry about what it is to be gay in America or not to be able to get married. Well, that's that's fixed now, you know. That's fixed now. We don't have to worry about that now, except for <laughs> except for those um, counties who are just being um, uh, intransigent. But we'll get to them. Um, I never have to worry about what it is to be gay. I never have to worry about what it is to be a woman. I just don't even have to consider it, right? You, likewise, there are some things that you don't have to consider. Some of you never have to consider what it is to be black. So it's not that privilege doesn't mean that you have it made in America. That's what I think people get mistaken. You don't have it made in America. It's just simply that you have a certain set of issues that you never have to even consider. I never have to consider what it's like to be a woman in America with one caveat that I have to consider. I have to try to learn about it for the sake of my wife and my daughter. But outside of learning about it and trying to be there for them, it's not a personal problem. And so it is therefore a point of privilege that I exist in. It's hard to recognize our own privilege. I understand. It's tough. It's difficult because it's, 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 it's almost like someone accusing you of something that you didn't even do. The reason I always pushed back and rejected, uh, the catcalling paradigm was because I always felt like someone was trying to say that I was guilty of it when I was never guilty of it. But, but, Just because I'm not guilty of it doesn't mean it doesn't exist, and it doesn't mean that I don't have privilege in that area. I think number three is the most important recognize your own privilege and don't take it as an attack on you. Just recognize that it's something that you never have to be concerned about. If you're white in America, you never have to worry about what it is to be black. If you're straight, you never have to worry about what it is to be gay. I'm Christian, I never have to worry about what it is to be an atheist in America, or or what it is to be a Muslim in America, or what it is to be whatever other faith, or even, hell, I, you know, you get the point. Moving on. Number four, fight for your allies, even when it's not your personal fight. We have to show up for each other. Who needs a Who needs an ally that's not going to be there to fight for them on their cause? A lot of times I see on in the social media world, whenever the national conversation becomes about um, something other than your personal issue, I hear people saying things like don't get distracted. Uh, don't don't um, don't lose focus. I don't need an ally that can't multitask. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't need an ally who can only take on one thing at a time we have a myriad of problems that requires us fighting on every front and think of it this way it's not a distraction because once you realize that the core root of sexism is the same core root of racism is the same core root of homophobia it's the same core root of xenophobia and xenophobia and that is hatred we all experience it differently yes it is expressed differently, yes, but the core of it is the same. Sexism is racism, is Islamophobia, is homophobia. It is all coming from the same hatred and bigotry that is latent in so many Americans. So once you realize that, you realize that I'm not. my issue isn't taking the back seat when I have to fight for somebody else. It's just that I have an opportunity to fight the bigger problem from a different perspective. So show up for the fight. Don't let it be said that you only showed up for your issues. You know what I mean? If there's a protest against uh, for black lives, then whites, gays, gay whites, every combination, every intersection, women, um, of course, they're black women. And then just the whole every intersection. Let's show up. And likewise, when it's a fight for somebody else, when it's a fight for uh, to shut down these intransigent counties and and clerks that don't want to perform the weddings, uh, then we need to show up and we need to speak out and realize that we're not the hero of the story story, but with the sidekick and know our place, but help out. All right. And then we're going to go to break number five. This, this, my friends is the most important. Never be guilty of using the same tactics against an ally that our enemies use. Plain and simple. What, how can we call ourselves friends when we do to each other the same thing that our enemies do? If, if, I, I would keep using myself as an, as an example, but enough. You've already, you already know I've been guilty of it myself. So let's use some specific examples. When we talk about police violence against black people, do not, I repeat, do not bring up black-on-black crime because it's a, it is a straw man and it is a red herring, right? White-on-white crime is an epidemic. But still, I'm not going to go down that argument because it's a huge red herring. But if you call yourself an ally, you should be educated enough about the issues to know To know the information, one, but then you should realize, don't use the same tactics. What good are you to us if you're doing to us what conservatives are doing to us? And what makes it worse is that we consider ourselves friends. And so we have inoculated ourselves against conservative attacks. But when it comes from someone who's ostensibly a friend, that hurts and that hurts that much more. And so that's where that's where you see battle lines drawn. That's where you see people going into their corners. And that's where you see the most disgusting fights in public and displays of disdain in public. And and we just can't keep doing that to each other. Don't be guilty of doing the same thing. Fellas, men, and I'll use myself, we cannot be we can't do to women the same thing that conservatives do to women just because we're afraid of confronting our own privilege. All right. Number six. When an ally makes a mistake, correct them, but don't destroy them. <laughs> we, on the progressive end, have the ability to destroy each other, man. We, <clears throat> when somebody makes a mistake, when one of our friends makes a mistake, uh, our so-called friends makes a mistake, man, we not, not only take them to task, we not only correct them, but we stomp the hell out of them. I mean, we are good for that. We will, we will kick them while they're down. Oh, you messed up, and you, you said something to me that a conservative said. I will. Oh, let's, let's unleash the kraken. Let's, let's, all of our tri- Twitter legion. Let's sick them. You know what I mean? We are good at that. And I'm not saying that we don't bring correction because it's absolutely necessary that we let our allies know when they have done us wrong. Bring correction. But when a person is down, they can't hear you if they have to cover their head because you're kicking them while they're down.
13: and best of the left Uh Dan Platt from Albany, New York uh, haven't called in a while but uh, there's good reason for that but I wanted to make a point about the Black Lives Matter disruptions of Bernie Sanders' campaign my first reaction is to this there's a bit of language I want to make a point about where a few of the commentators said that the disruptors or the protesters or the activists came in to the room and this is probably subconscious but uh that it, it seems to be exclusionary language that they came in, they say, you know, they kept saying that they came into the event I asked my friend uh, Yad, a gay Palestinian, so he knows how to be, uh, he's been oppressed every which way, and he was one of those disruptors, he was at the table and I asked him, like, did you guys come into the room or were you in the room and he said um, he confirmed that these were all Netroots people that had gone multiple times, these were members they belonged there so why don't these commentators, it's very easy switch to say that they attended, that these activists were there at the event, and then they disrupted. Why use the term, come in? Um, but that's kind of fine grain point to take a wider tack on this with those two women in Seattle. I found about ten people I knew on Facebook who seemed to have a positive outlook on it like I did. Um, otherwise, you see a lot of paranoia, you see every which way to discredit these two women. Uh, some say they're Clinton plants. Others say they're Palin supporters. That shit stuff. Like, it's hard to know and what evidence anyone is basing this on. And when Yad points, uh, my friend Yad points out that he was one of the disruptors, there are these so-called progressives who tell him that, you know, here's to you getting shot by the police and dying slowly. And it kind of gives me flashbacks to Occupy Wall Street where we would try to disrupt business as usual and people tell us to sit down, shut up, and eat our peas. And then in those conversations at Occupy and the lessons learned, uh, that has taken quite a few years to sink in with me is to listen to the kind of activists of color who kind of do take it too far and I disagree with them about, uh, the struggles for justice being completely black or marginalized centered it has to all be about them and whites are supporters completely but on that note what i do agree with is the need for whites or allies as we so many progressives seem to be calling themselves online when they basically say these black women should have you know never done this or anything whatsoever uh, you know, we're your allies, we're your allies. Allies are supportive. Allies listen. They share the stage. They share power. And by putting everything on one person like Bernie Sanders or any candidate, you're not talking about sharing power or sharing the stage. And I say to people, I argue several ways about this, but one way is like, look, if they, if Bernie Sanders shared the stage with Black Lives Matter local group had other speakers there, speakers of color, then there would be no opening or need for these women to feel like they needed to do what they did and storm the stage and take over. But taking over is kind of, you know, taking power is kind of what uh, us radicals do because we we haven't had any our whole lives. And, and all of us feel that way. And that's why these thousands of people are going to Bernie Sanders. They think they're getting power by showing up. Yeah, And I'll leave it at that. Thank you very much.
14: Hey, Jay, wait again. Wanted to comment on the uh, the last episode you did, and I thought it to be an utter tragedy that we we throw away food while one in four children in America are food insecure. I think that's that's almost like a certain certain form of of, of extreme disrespect if, if you. If you think about it, I, at least that's the way I'm taking it. It just—it really bugs me, you know. And this is this is something that's already made, it's already produced, it's already there, and it's needed. And instead, we just throw it in a dumpster. And I understand that the transportation of this, the, log, the logistics of getting it from the supermarket to the food bank, costs money. I get that. But would it really cost that much money for, say, the the, the government, be they state, federal, whatever, to Subsidize these food banks so that they can afford to hire a driver and pay for the gas and the truck to go pick the stuff up and bring it back to to the communities that need it. You know, it would actually probably end up saving money if you think about it because perhaps we could, you know, less food stamps would be required at that point, or uh, better health leads to uh, less people, you know, being sick, being using the emergency room. You know, they'd probably end up saving money in reality. It just it seems sickening to me that in the richest country in the world, supposedly, uh, we act so poor sometimes, you know? We act like we don't have the money to do this. We we do have the money to do this. I mean, okay, so w- w- we can't raise taxes, fine, but we can take away from other columns and add to the food column, you know what I mean? Or, or the food distribution column. I mean, okay, military, you'll have to forgo one bombing run in Syria, just one. And that'll probably pay for the whole damn thing right there, you know? It's just it the logistics should not stand in the way of people getting the food they need. This is just common sense. And because it's common sense, it'll probably never happen. So perfectly good food, perfectly healthy food that would nourish people is gonna go to dumpsters and I guess nourish the rats. Yeah, we care more about rats than we do starving children. Yeah. You know, sometimes my country uh, I just I get so fed up with it, you know. It's the simple problem. So many of these problems that we're facing have really, really, really simple answers. It doesn't take a lot of brain power to figure this out. If the problem is we can't get a guy to drive a truck from the Walmart to the food bank, that should be the, one of the easiest problems that we could solve. We've got the money. We all know we've got the money. Let's get it done. And, and let, let's not let logistics stand in the way of feeding people. I mean, it, for God's sakes, you know. Anyway, Jay, uh it was a great episode, but it, it was pretty sad at the same time. So uh, anyway, I appreciate it. Have a good one.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Kitty Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can either record a message on the voice memo app of your phone and email it to me, j at bestoftheleft.com, or leave a voicemail at 202-999-3991. So I hope that everyone learned you know, a thing or two from today's episode. And I just wanted to put a little bit further of a point on one thing that came up in the Sarah Jaffe interview in which she is distinguishing between feelings and politics. She mentions an article by Catherine Cross from Feministing about, you know, distinguishing between being offended and the structural ramifications of oppression. There's a big difference between the two, but we sort of use the idea of being offended as a stand in for what we really should be talking about, which is oppression. So I wanted to find this original article and read a few paragraphs to you because it's the best response I've seen to the problems with PC culture or political correctness gone wild and all of those sorts of things that people like to talk about. So this article is titled, I Find This Offensive, How Offense Discourse Traps Us Into Inaction. Uh, Again, by Catherine Cross on Feministing. So she writes, No, you do not have the right to not be offended. Concomitantly, we need to stop using offended as a synonym for structural harm or oppression in everyday political discourse. It has to be one of the most significant rhetorical own goals of the left since the 1960s, allowing the word offend to become the go-to way of describing the harms of prejudice This content offends me, your words are offensive, his conduct gave offense to X, etc. Being made to fear for your life is not the same as feeling hurt by speech. Losing your job as a result of stereotypes or harassment contained in speech is not the same as feeling personally offended by that speech. Being shot by the police because of ideas about your skin color transmitted through discourse is not the same as merely being offended by it. Being outed against your will is not the same as having your feelings hurt by it. It is the deeds that flow from words which concern us and which cannot be contained by the concept of offensiveness." We respond to prejudice in pointless fashion. This individual said something that hurt this other individual. Therefore, offense is the best way to describe that harm. But the reality is that when we talk about something like, say, misgendering a trans woman or using her old name in public, what is happening in those situations transcends the individual offense felt by the woman in question. That is part of her experience of the event and part of the harm, but it is not in itself a political matter. What is political in no uncertain terms is the way such words and ideas are the spear point of violence against trans women used to justify it and all but ensure such crimes will be repeated. That is what so many transphobes on the internet deliberately access when they employ trans misogynistic hate speech. And that is what takes it above the level of mere offensiveness. So many of our slain sisters died hearing their murderers misgender them. Those who survive could, for instance, tell tales of angry men throwing bottles at them shouting, That's a man! Words and ideas shape and justify inflicting harm on marginal others, just as they impel men like Roger or Anders Bering Brevik to murder. They also serve to inspire and justify campaigns of online harassment that can drive people from their homes, impose difficult working conditions on them, force them from their jobs or other sources of income, and open them and their families up to physical violence, be it from people threatening to kill them directly or through deceiving the police into swatting their target." The prejudicial ideas that make all this justifiable to the masses of perpetrators are not merely offensive, though in their shallow ignorance and painful stupidity, they are most certainly that. They are outright dangerous to people's well-being. So as I said, I just want to put a finer point on this particular issue. You know, before hearing that interview that was earlier in the show and and reading these articles about it, you know, I, I had like some sort of an unspoken understanding of the importance of you know political correctness for the sake of You know, working for the greater good of the marginalized and so forth. But I I didn't have the words to really explain, you know, in a deep or concise way what that value really was. And I think that this article did the best I had seen so far on uh, on conveying that message. So again, it's Catherine Cross from Feministing, and the title is "I Find This Offensive: How Offense Discourse Traps Us into Inaction." If you want to uh, go check that out, I didn't read you the whole article. Article, so there's a lot more to it if you want to read the rest and uh, share it in your networks and so forth. So that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews in iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your account at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the 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 sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying
6: shame How we get so trained i